Well, if you have a Bible, please take it and turn to John chapter 16. John 16, and we will be in verses 16 through the end of the chapter, verse 33. We have slowly been working through the upper room discourse of Jesus, though probably not as slowly as we could, uh, but we will uh, finish up the the main teaching section of this today, and then we'll look at chapter 17 where Jesus prays for his disciples and for disciples throughout all the ages. If you're wondering where we're heading with John, we continue in John, and Lord willing, on Easter Sunday, which is March 31st, we will look at John chapter 21 together and wrap up uh, our time in John's gospel, a fitting time to close it out. Um, But today our, our task is to look at John 16 verses 16 to 33. I was listening to an audio book this past week. It's a memoir by a guy named Esau McCulley titled How Far to the Promised Land. And in one chapter, he was relating the story of the night that he and his wife were engaged. By his own admission, it happened without much planning. Uh, They were out for the evening having some coffee Uh, He didn't have a ring at the time, but just suddenly decided that this was the right moment to ask her to marry him. And still, after his impromptu proposal, his wife-to-be said yes, and he was just overwhelmed with joy, as you would be in that moment. And he wrote this. He said, I looked around at the patrons happily eating their desserts and sipping their coffee. How could they be so quiet when the world was brand new and bursting with color? Uh, Maybe you've had a, a similar feeling where you experience a, a moment of life-changing significance and you wonder how, how everyone around you can act as if nothing has happened. Um, sometimes that experience is a sad one. Uh, Andy Gullihorn writes about this in a song called It's the End of a World. And it's just this idea of how, how can everyone's life go on in the midst of this tragedy that I've experienced. But other times we're, we're filled with joy like Esau was, and we can't understand why everyone else is not filled with that same sense of of happiness. Well, as Jesus begins to draw his upper room discourse to a close, he continues to help his disciples and us understand how we are to follow him after he has ascended to the Father. He has said multiple times and in various ways that it's actually good for him to go. And here in the second half of, of chapter 16, he reveals even more reasons why his departure is good for his followers. As he teaches, we, we begin to see that the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus bring us into to a new realm of existence as his followers. Everything changes What Jesus has done through his finished work on the cross and in the resurrection changes everything, and God's kingdom truly breaks into our world in a new way. And with that kingdom comes joy and peace, unlike anything that we have ever experienced or could experience apart from the work of Christ. These are the kind of joy and peace that that can change our lives and would make us look around and wonder why other people don't respond with the same sense of excitement. Why isn't everyone else so happy and excited about what has occurred, about this change that has happened? In light of this monumental shift in the course of history and creation, the teachings of Jesus that we consider today say to us, pursue and proclaim the joy and peace that Jesus' work has given to us. 
That's our, our big idea for today. Pursue, chase after, seek after, pursue and proclaim. Tell others. Pursue and proclaim the joy and peace that Jesus' work has given to us. The joy and the peace of God's kingdom are available to anyone who is in Christ. Though maybe we've, we've failed to understand the extent of this joy and, and peace that is ours in Christ, or maybe there was a time when we pursued it and we understood it better, maybe in our early days of following Jesus, but we've just grown a little callous, we've grown a little lazy in our walk. But whatever the situation is, we can all benefit from a reminder to pursue the joy and the peace that are available to those of us who trust in Christ. This joy and peace are also realities that we should proclaim to others. We've been changed by Christ. And while others present may not understand why we believe that the world is completely different, we can invite them to to find through faith in Jesus the kind of lasting joy and peace that he offers through faith in his sacrificial work on the cross and his triumphant resurrection. So God's word invites us to pursue and proclaim the joy and peace that Jesus' work has given to us. Let's read John 16, 16 to 33. Jesus, as we saw last week, has just spoken of the fact that when he leaves, he's going to send the blessing of the Holy Spirit to all of his children. And here he continues to reveal to us how his departure, while sad at first, will later bring lasting joy and peace, this joy and peace that we are called to pursue and proclaim. So let's read these verses. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. 
Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Pursue and proclaim the joy and peace that Jesus' work has given to us. Before we meditate on the joy and the peace that Jesus makes available to us, we find something in verses 16 to 19, and I would just simply title those verses, Confusion. (laughs) Confusion. This is the disciples being confused. Uh, Verse 16 actually brings some clarity to the topic of Jesus' departure that was introduced back in verse 5. There's even a clear statement uh, in verse 28 that he says, I came from the Father, I've come and have come into the world, and I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Very clear statements about what Jesus is is doing. Uh, But here, right now, for the disciples, Jesus' words just bring confusion to them. And John seems to make, want to make it very clear that the disciples are confused. He, he says it over the course of three verses. He continues to reiterate that the disciples don't know what Jesus is talking about. But in describing their confusion, it allows him to repeat that statement of Jesus. These words, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. John repeats those word, those, that phrase three times in four verses to emphasize it. So, so whatever those words mean, they are vital for us to understand. As we look at this passage, I think it's going to become clear that this statement of Jesus is referring to his death and his resurrection. So what does it mean? It means that in a little while, the disciples would no longer see Jesus. Why? Because he would be dead and he would be buried. But then, a little while later, they would see him. Why? because he would be resurrected. It seems pretty straightforward, but the confusion came because despite having seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead not long ago, and despite all of Jesus' statement about his hour, of his, about his death, about his resurrection, the disciples had no category for a Messiah who would die and rise again. And yet soon they would witness his death as well as his resurrection, and then after that, everything would come into focus. I think like the disciples, we may still be confused by the ways or even the words of Jesus, but there is also the sense in which we are in a different place because we stand on the other side of the cross and the resurrection from the disciples. Therefore, our understanding of of the death and the resurrection of Jesus helps us to see that God often works his purposes in ways that are beyond us. The disciples had no category for a Messiah who would die and rise again. But we do. We know that that is the core of our faith. And because of that, death and resurrection are always an option for us as we try to make sense of what God is doing in us and in the world. We may be confused, but we never need to despair because we know that our God has walked into death and come out on the other side victorious even when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't need to fear. Why? Because we know that the one who defeated death is with us, and he can bring resurrection life into every situation. Brothers and sisters, the the death and the resurrection of Jesus should mark us, And, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus can help us make sense 
of the confusion and discouragement that we encounter in almost every area of our lives. And yet, while we can have confidence in the reality of the resurrection, we may have to wait, quote, a little while before we see what God is doing. I'm sure that the three days that Jesus was in the tomb did not feel like a little while to the disciples. They were probably the longest three days of their lives. And, and we too may become impatient for answers or for actions when God seems far from us or far from our family or far from what's happening in the world. But we can trust that the time, in the times that we can't see him, that, that those times will just be a little while, that soon he will reveal himself to us once again. We all face various stresses and concerns, so many different people, so many different stresses and concerns and, and worries. We encounter pressure from the world or maybe just sadness from particular circumstances. We have anxiety because of the future. We might be struggling in our marriage. We might be struggling as parents. We might be struggling in singleness. We might wonder what God is doing in us or in the world. But we know that that he is our God and he is the God who can raise the dead. And though we may have to wait for a little while, we can say with the words of Psalm 27, 13, I am confident, I'm confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I am still here in the land of the living. We can trust that. When he comes to us, we can know that he will arrive and he will bring into all of our confusion joy. That's what we find in verses 20 to 28 joy. Jesus speaks of joy in these verses, though you might also remember John 15, 11, he said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's coming back to this theme of joy. And this fullness of joy comes because for a little while the disciples did not see him and then a little while later they did. Joy comes because Jesus inaugurates a new age through his death and his resurrection. Again, notice that there is sorrow that precedes joy. Verse 20 is clear that the disciples are going to weep. They're going to lament the death of their friend just as Jesus had wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. And while they were weeping, the world would be rejoicing. To add insult to their injury, the world rejoices. Why? Because those who had rejected Christ would see the death of Jesus as a victory. It would be the final piece of evidence that Jesus was not the Messiah that he claimed to be. But the world's joy would be short-lived, just as the sorrow of the disciples would only be for a short time. Because after a little while, three days to be exact, the sorrow of the disciples would be transformed into joy at the resurrected Christ. In light of this, Jesus gives us an illustration of sorrow being turned into joy that the prophets also often turned to when they were talking about the Messiah. You can read, John, or you can read Isaiah 26, 16 to 21 if you want this evening. Isaiah 26, 16 to 21. That's an example of the prophets using the same illustration of a woman in labor giving birth. Here in verse 21, Jesus says that the disciples were going to be like a woman giving birth to a baby. Now, I've never given birth to a child. I've been around for seven births, and so I know that it's no walk in the park. Uh, they don't call them pains without a reason. It's not called labor because it's easy. Um, and while in the grand scheme of things, labor takes, quote, only a 
little while, it doesn't feel like a little while from everything I can gather. <laughs> but after that little while, there is this, this moment. There's a, a moment where the baby enters into the world. And in some sense, I don't want to say perfectly, but in some sense, all of the pain and all of the fear and all of the difficulty just sort of fades away. It's replaced with joy. I can remember the relief that sort of enters the room when a, when a child is, is finally born and, and the joy that then comes into the room uh, when a mother holds that child for the first time. The pain that she had experienced is, was, was very real, but suddenly it fades from view. Why? Because joy replaces it. The joy of new life. Well, in a similar way, the disciples would be sad at the death of Jesus, a painful sadness. But all of their sadness would fade from view when the resurrected Christ would appear to them. They would instead be filled with joy, and a joy, Jesus says, that no one could take from them. This joy, then, it must not be something that's reserved for the distant future. I think we could look at this and say that the joy comes at the return of Christ, but it's ours through the resurrection of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus has already happened. The joy that the disciples experienced happened when they witnessed the resurrecting Christ. Certainly, certainly there is a, a kind of joy that arrives only when Christ returns, but even now we have a joy that is rooted in Jesus' defeat of death such that we can experience what he calls a fullness of joy right now. Having understood verses 16 to 24, I think we could say that the joy that Jesus is speaking of arises from a couple different places. The first one I would say is because of our confidence in the reality of resurrection. Why do we have joy as Christians? Because of our confidence in the reality of resurrection. That resurrection is a real thing that can happen. We've been playing this new game that we got for Christmas. It's called Magic Maze. And each time that you play the, the game, you can take on a, a new scenario. Scenario one is the simplest, and then scenario two gets harder, and, and, and on and on. And with each scenario, there are new, what are called permanent rules that are added to the game. So the previous times you played, you couldn't do certain things. But when you play a new scenario, there's a new permanent rule. And now you can always do this new thing that's been added. Well, when we think about Christianity, there's a new permanent rule. There's a new permanent rule that, that arises when Jesus emerges from the tomb, declaring that death no longer has ultimate power over those who trust in Christ. That's the new rule. Death has lost. Death is dead. It's a new permanent rule for anyone who is in Christ. Now, sure, we will physically die if we're not here when Christ returns, but such death only marks our entrance into life eternal. And because Jesus has, has taken away the sting of death, it means that nothing can take away the joy that he gives. Why? Because all things will be made new and right and perfect. Because death will one day be dead and every sad thing will come untrue. Because even when we experience death now, we know that the cross and the empty tomb are able to shine light into the midst of that darkness. Why do we have joy? Because we have confidence in the reality of resurrection, that there's a new 
law. There's a new rule for us as Christians, and it's that death is dead. And yet this confidence in the reality of the resurrection isn't the only source of our joy. Jesus also weaves together in in verses 25 through 28 the the ideas of what I'm going to call clarity and communion. Clarity and communion. Clarity having to do with knowledge and understanding and communion having to do with our relationship to God specifically in prayer. So let's work these out. They're kind of woven together, I think. They come in into the Christian life, clarity and communion, and they bring us joy. The clarity, I think, shows up first in verse 23. Jesus says that a day is coming when the disciples will ask him nothing. They're going to stop asking questions. I was thinking maybe about like um, someone who's being trade, trained in a, in a trade, maybe someone who wants to become a plumber. And so they're apprenticing underneath a a master plumber. And they have lots of questions all the time. And they're asking lots of questions of the person who's training them. But there comes a moment when they've received all of that knowledge and and they don't have to ask questions anymore. And suddenly, a little bit further down the road even, years down the road, they become the person that someone is asking questions of. They are the one that, that gives information. Well, the follower of Jesus doesn't necessarily have all of the answers to every question. In fact, I think... A mark of maturity in a Christian is a willingness to say, I don't know about some matters. Um, But there is a clarity we find here that comes with this new age that Jesus inaugurates that means that the disciples would no longer be confused like they were in verses 17 to 19. They would have a deeper knowledge mediated to them by the Spirit. Later in verse 25, Jesus said that he would no longer speak to them in figures of speech, but he would speak plainly to them. They would understand what he was saying clearly. Now, in verses 29 through 30, they seem to think that that moment of clarity has, has most definitely come. And yet Jesus points out that they're actually going to, to desert him when he's arrested and he's tried and he's crucified. I, I think there may be in his question, do you now believe? Just a, are you sure, guys? Uh, that may be part of what he's communicating there. And yet, they believe, so they believe, but in the, in the absence of the cross and without the light of the resurrection, their clarity is not as strong as they seem to think that it is. And yet, after the cross and after the resurrection, things will become more clear to them. These same disciples who ran when Jesus was arrested would stand up on the day of Pentecost a couple of months later and boldly proclaim that Jesus truly was from God, that he is the Messiah who alone can save us. With the exception of John, they would all be killed for their faith in Christ. Clarity would come, but it came after the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the arrival of the Spirit. And that same clarity is ours now after the death and the resurrection of Christ because of the gifts of the Scriptures and the gifts of God's Spirit. We have a clarity about who God is and who Christ is and what he is doing in our world. With this clarity, Jesus also speaks about the communion all of his followers have with the Father. Verses 23 and 24 again call us to pray. Remember, this theme has been all throughout the Upper Room Discourse. And to pray with confidence, in the confidence of our relationship with the Father through our faith in the Son. We are to ask anything of the Father, knowing that if we ask in Jesus' name, according to his will, that the Father will give us what we need. Why? so that our joy may be full. 
Ask whatever you want of the Father, and he will give it to you. Why? So that your joy may be full. Now, if you hear that invitation, ask whatever you want of the Father, so that your joy may be full, and you immediately start to think about, well, here's all the material blessings that I could imagine, and if God wants to make me filled with joy, then he will answer all of my requests for them. You can get your wish list together and decide, these are the things that I want, this is what will make me happy, and so I can ask the Father and he will give them to me so that my joy may be full. Well, if you think about joy in terms of money or cars or houses and the rest, then you've missed the point of the joy that Jesus is, is talking about. The, the joy that Jesus offers is, to us is, is a joy that no one can take from us. And if it's a joy that no one can take from us, it can't be rooted in things that will fade or that can be taken from us. Because if the thing gives me joy and the thing is taken from me, then my joy is taken from me. And that's not the kind of joy he's talking about. So it means that we are asking the Father for eternal spiritual blessings, the kind that he's spoken of here in the Upper Room Discourse. We're asking that that he would strengthen us to love one another, knowing that when we love one another and have deep relationships with one another in Christ, that that's where joy is found. We're asking that God would enable us to keep his commandments because his commandments bring us life and they bring us joy. We're asking that he would give us boldness to proclaim the gospel and to continue the mission of Jesus because that's what we're made for him partnering with God in spreading the good news to the ends of the earth brings us joy. The children uh, a little bit later are going to learn about the Lord's Prayer in Sunday school. And I think that Jesus in some ways has taught us how to pray for these kinds of things that give us true joy. Praying for things like, may God's name be hallowed and holy in this world. May his kingdom come. May God give us our daily bread. Would he forgive us and forgive others? Those are the things that bring joy into our lives that we can ask of the Father. This kind of bold prayer is rooted in communion with God. It's rooted in deep relationship with him. And Jesus tells us that if we believe in him, then the Father loves us. Do you notice that there? Um, it says it in, in verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. No longer does Jesus need to ask things of the Father on our behalf, but we come in the name of Jesus by the blood of Jesus and ask things directly of the Father, knowing that he loves us because we believe in his Son. Just a little side note, the Trinity continues to jump out to me in this upper room discourse. Do you notice how even this newness that Jesus brings is Trinitarian? Last week we talked about the coming of the Spirit. And we see also now how the, the Son opens up the way of salvation for it. And we see that the love, the, we see the love of the Father for us. In fact, this, this, whole, this whole upper room discourse is Trinitarian, revealing how we live apart from Jesus, not simply or how we live not simply in the absence of Jesus, but also in this new reality of the relationship that we have with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And that it's all made possible by the cross and the resurrection. And it all brings us fullness of joy and joy that will never fade. This is a joy that springs from our confidence in the reality of the resurrection, that nothing including death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus 
and that Jesus is always in the business of making things new. We have joy because there's a new rule for the Christian life. Death is dead. But we also have joy because of the clarity and the communion that is ours. We have been given God's spirit who guides us into truth through the gift of his word. And so as we read the scriptures and behold wonderful truth, we are filled with joy. And as we commune with the Father in prayer through the work of the Son and the power of the Spirit, we are assured that, that the Father loves us and he will give us everything that we need to live lives marked by joy. Do we walk through difficulty? Of course. Of course we walk through difficulty. We all experience these a little while moments and seasons. And yet because of Christ, the newness that he has brought into the world means that we can have true joy in him, no matter what is going on. Coupled with this joy, we are given peace, according to verse 33. This is maybe the concluding verse of the main teaching section here in, verse, uh, in chapters um, 13 to 16. Verse 33 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you remember what marked the first part of this discourse, this command of Jesus? He said it a few times. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. In the midst of something that was so troubling to the disciples, he kept saying to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. And just before Jesus' prayer for his disciples then and throughout all ages in chapter 17, he says to us the same thing in different words. He says that he has said all of these things so that we would have peace, shalom, so that we would cease striving and be able to rest in him so that a sense of, of well-being and faith would flood over every area of our lives. Peace. Feels the opposite of my existence sometimes, doesn't it? I feel like I'm always striving. I feel like I'm always running. But Jesus offers peace. And in saying that he will give us peace, Jesus acknowledges that we will still face trouble in this world. That we will have moments where for a little while we will not see him. But we can always take heart. We can always stand firm. We can always find the strength to keep walking in faith. Why? Why? What would keep us going? Well, he tells us because Jesus has overcome the world. Notice it's not uh, that he will overcome the world. It's that he has overcome the world. That it is it is finished. It's as good as done. Even though he has not gone to the cross and not risen from the dead, he knows that it's coming. And Jesus has overcome the world when he willingly laid down his life for us. And when he triumphantly took it up again, he defeated every enemy of our souls, including the world and the flesh and the devil. And now, through him, we can overcome the powers of darkness because Jesus overcame them and Jesus has sent his spirit to dwell in his church. In the midst of a world that's filled with trouble, we have peace. Why? Because he has made peace through the blood of his cross. So like our Savior, in some sense, in this world that's filled with trouble, we can sleep in the boat while the storm is just raging around us. We can have peace. 
D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. From this, they take heart and begin to share his peace. As I was reading this, I wondered if, if Paul had these words of Jesus in mind when he wrote the end of, end of Romans 8. Remember these familiar and powerful world, words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, in light of the cross and the resurrection, in light of the, the clarity that has come to us through the words and the life of Jesus and through the ministry of the Spirit, and in light of the fact that the Father loves us, because of our faith in the Son, our lives can be marked by joy and by peace. Don't we long for those things? Joy and peace. They are ours if we are in Christ. And we can tell the world around us how they too can know the fullness of joy and the fullness of peace even in the midst of tribulation. So I invite us all to pursue and proclaim the joy and the peace that Jesus' work has given to us. We come now to the Lord's table where we remind ourselves just how revolutionary this work that Christ has done is, how it has truly changed everything. But I think as we come to this table, there's two different ways to approach it. If you're not in Christ, then this table is marked by confusion. Just as the disciples were confused by what Jesus was doing, you might look at this and be completely confused. You don't understand why bread would represent the body of Jesus or juice his blood. It seems strange and empty to you. Or maybe your confusion about this table could be that it's some form of good work such that these elements are somehow going to bring you forgiveness or bring you life. You're confused. But if you're in Christ, then he's brought clarity. He's brought clarity about what this table means. You know that the bread and the cup represent what Christ did on the cross, dying in our place as our substitute to give us forgiveness and new life. You know that these elements can't save you, but they remind you that Christ has saved you. Therefore, this table is not a place of confusion. It's a place of joy, and it's a place of peace. It's a place to remember that Christ alone can give you the fullness of joy that the world cannot take away, and that he has made peace between us and God through the blood of his cross. If you are confused by this table, I'd love to talk to you about it. 
but I would ask that you just let the bread and the cup pass for today. But if you've put your faith in Christ, and you've followed him in the first step of obedience as he calls us to be baptized, then I would invite you to take this meal, and I'd invite you to take this meal with two words on your mind. Joy, the joy that is ours because of what Christ has done, and peace, the peace that we can have because Jesus has overcome the world. I want to invite you to take a moment of silence as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, and then I will pray, and then Joshua will come, and we will pass the bread and then take it all together, and then we will do the same with the cup. But I invite you into a moment of silence now uh, before we do all that. Father, we pause now and we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed and how he took this meal that was a reminder of the, the exodus and transformed it into a reminder of him. Lord, what a statement of how the death of Christ and his resurrection truly transform everything and change everything. And so we come now to remember how revolutionary uh, the, the death and the resurrection of Christ are for us, that they are our hope, they are our life, they are our source of joy and peace. Would you be with us even now as we take this bread and this cup together, and would you remind us of these things? I ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.